This podcast is a production of Community Covenant Church in Eagle River, Alaska, a place where real people meet a real God to live in a real world. For more information, check out our website at communitycovenant.net. Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, left the Jordan and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them he was hungry. The devil said to him, If you are the Son of God, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, It is written, A man shall not live on bread alone. The devil led him up to a high place and showed him in an instant all the kingdoms of the world. And he said to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor. It has been given to me, and I can give it to anyone I want to. If you worship me, it will all be yours. Jesus answered, It is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. The devil led him to Jerusalem and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down from here, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered, It is said, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. When the devil had finished all this tempting, he left him until an opportune time. Good morning, church. My name is Pastor Brad Bergfalk, transitional lead pastor here at Community Covenant Church, and uh, I just uh, experienced my first 4th of July here in Alaska, and um, it was really lovely. We put a fire in the fireplace, had some hot chocolate. <laughs> Welcome to Alaska. Well, we, we are in a series of sermons that uh, we began a couple weeks ago that I'm calling Wild, the Unpredictable Jesus, and... Uh, <clears throat> You will remember that a couple of weeks ago uh, that I said that I am trying to make an argument uh, throughout this series of sermons that, that uh, if we want to understand the character of Jesus and his ministry, then we have to understand at least this one thing, and that is what the kingdom was about. Because everything that Jesus did, everything that he said, was all kind of framed in the context of kingdom. For Jesus, the arrival of God's kingdom was the central truth to which his life and ministry pointed to. And uh, last week we had a guest preacher here, Pastor Dan uh, Kraus, 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 who was here. I asked him to come. He is the pastor of our church plant, our daughter church, that uh, we planted about a year and a half or two years ago now down in the Muldoon area of Anchorage. And I was delighted that he uh, took me up on my invitation. And um, uh, Dan kind of continued the theme by talking a little bit about the nature of you know, the servant uh, Jesus, the servant heart of Jesus. Well, well, for Jesus, if the character of the kingdom is not evident in the lives of, of those who claim to follow him, if the character of the kingdom is not evident in the lives of those who claim to follow him, then there's a pretty good likelihood that we have missed something important in our understanding 
of Jesus and the kingdom. Let me give you an example of that. And there are many, and um, this example is horrifying, actually. But uh, do you remember a number of years ago that the Rwanda genocide that took place? Nobody in the world noticed it until it was uh, well underway. But uh, at that time, Rwanda was considered the most Christian nation in the world. In fact, um, a million people were slaughtered in a course of a very short period of time. Weeks, if not months. And people who worshipped side by side in the same church on one week became perpetrators of violence the next. Something was missing when it came to the Rwandan Christians' understanding of the character of God's kingdom. This is what I'm talking about. The way we live the way we behave, the way we uh, interact with our community, with our spouse, with our children, with our mom, with our dad, needs to reflect somehow the fact that, God, that this kingdom that Jesus is talking about has seeped deep into our bones. And of course, all of you know, well, many of you know who've been following Jesus for any length of time, that that's a lot harder to, to do than it is to talk about, right? Well, here we have uh, the story of Jesus going into the desert for 40 days. And he has the, the devil approach him while he's there. And, uh, and it, we've probably heard this story preached many times. And, and uh, the, the sermon that we probably heard on this text probably go, went something like this. It's, it goes, Jesus needed to be tempted to both identify with humanity while at the same time exerting his divine nature, you know, by overcoming the temptations that uh, he faced. And in the same way, now here's the sermon part, in the same way we must face our own temptations with the help of Jesus. Now, you probably heard that sermon. I, in fact, I've probably preached that sermon on this text at least a couple times in the course of my life. And on first glance, that's not a bad sermon to preach about temptation. It's not a bad sermon at all. Um, but, what happens when we read this text that way, what we do is we make this story of temptation of Jesus, which is a significant place at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, we make this story into kind of a story of temptation where while the preacher preaches, we begin to think about our own vices and then, then we try to derive from this encounter of Jesus with the devil, you know, three easy steps so that the next time we face some, some, uh, one of our temptations based on our own vice, that we can overcome that, that temptation. Well, that's not really what this story is about. You see, as we reflect about this story of temptation from the Gospel of Luke, and it's also in the Gospel of Mark and in the Gospel of Matthew, we must take note that this story falls in a context in Jesus' ministry. In fact, right at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. In Luke chapter 3, right before this, this episode that we've just read this morning, we are introduced to the ministry of John the Baptist, who baptizes Jesus at the outset of Jesus' ministry before he goes into the desert. And Luke goes to great lengths in, if you read chapter 3 at the very end, to present this, this, this genealogy, this, this, this lineage of Jesus so that he can provide us, the reader, Jesus' credentials 
for doing what he does using the line of Joseph. This is important for Luke because he is laying the groundwork for what is about to take place right after this in in Luke chapter 4. So immediately following this episode of, of temptation, again, trying to frame the context here a little bit in order to understand the text we're going to look at, um, immediately following this temptation experience, Jesus comes back from the desert, and we have Jesus standing up in his home church, kind of giving his inaugural sermon to all of his friends and relatives who love him dearly and are, you know, are, are, are clapping on the inside because they want him to succeed. I mean, isn't that how home churches uh, look at their homegrown preachers? Uh, I, I think it is. So Jesus picks up the scroll of Isaiah, which was the, which was the assigned text for the day. And he begins to read, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news to the poor. I'm with, that's good. I'm with that. To give sight to the blind. Yeah. Yeah, we could use a little of that. To bring release to the captives, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And when Jesus was finished, he, he, he closed the scroll and he sat down. And the scripture says that, that the congregation was amazed by Jesus' words, by what he said. And then Jesus continues by making a couple of pithy comments about sick people needing a doctor. And then he illustrates that God's favor, and here's the part that, that his home church was not that happy about. He said, God's favor not only is talking about the Jewish population, but God's favor includes the Gentiles. It includes everybody. At this, this this warm and gregarious congregation that was cheering for Jesus up to this point in the sermon became angry, and the Bible says that they tried to kill him. Now, I have preached a lot of sermons in the course of my life where I've probably rankled the feathers of one or two people along the way. I'll admit it, uh, I'm sure I haven't done that here yet. Note the word yet. But I have never, to the best of my knowledge, had anyone uh, scheme to kill me as a result of something I said in a sermon. Well, uh, there was that, that one time that, I, that I, I holed up in my office with a pastoral colleague whose life had been threatened by an estranged husband because he was counseling his wife. And the husband called up and said, I've got a gun, I'm going to come to the church right now, and I'm going to kill you and my wife. And he asked me, as his young associate, to hang around just to be moral support. And I'm thinking, now, what in the world was I doing? But that's a different story. Okay. <laughs> well, sandwiched in between these two episodes that I've just described for you then, we have this story of Jesus and his temptation in the devil. Now, let's take a look at this really briefly to see what this episode in Jesus' life and ministry, can teach us about God's kingdom. And I'm calling this the anatomy of temptation. Following Jesus' baptism, then, that we just uh, talked about, the text says that Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, was led into the desert where he was tempted by the devil. Full of the Holy Spirit. He was led by the Holy Spirit into the desert where he experienced temptation. Now, let's pause for a moment here. 
one would think that the last place a person who was being led by the Spirit of God would end up is in a dry and lifeless place where they would face the temptation from the devil himself. That's not the way we tend to think that the Holy Spirit operates, is it? But that's what the text says. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the desert where he faced the temptation from the devil. The Holy Spirit isn't supposed to lead us into temptation. The Holy Spirit is supposed to save us from temptation. The Holy Spirit isn't supposed to lead us into trials or tribulations or difficulty or physical challenges or marital problems. But this Holy Spirit led Jesus into the desert where he was tempted. And, and, and when we find ourselves going through a particularly difficult time in our life, our, at least my first assumption is, is that um, it's not the Holy Spirit that has led me to this place, but rather God has abandoned me. I said to somebody this week, uh, uh, described to me sort of the painful experience that they're going through right now in their life. Um, and they said, I just don't feel connected to God. And I, and I don't know what to do about it. Can you help me? And this is what I said to them. I said, um, in my experience, the places where my faith has grown the most is during those dark and desert times when I feel absolutely disconnected to God. In fact, I have discovered that, that during those times, God hasn't gone anywhere. In most cases, I am the one who have moved. All of this to say that when you feel compelled to believe that life always gets easier uh, when it comes to your relationship to God, when, when everything's on track and when everything's kind of hitting all cylinders at the, at the right time, think about Jesus for a moment. It, it was the Holy Spirit of God that led Jesus into the desert to face his demons so that he could come out on the other side stronger than he went in. Now, some people view temptation as a bad thing. Temptation itself is not the evil. It's what we decide to do with it that is evil, that can destroy us, right? Right? Ed Cole puts it like this. You don't drown by falling in the water. You drown by staying in the water. You see the difference? There's, there's probably not much likelihood that if you have breath, that you will be, avoid, be able to avoid all of the temptations that, that tempt you, whatever they may be. And the issue is not the temptation. The issue is how you choose to respond to whatever it is that tempts you. It's, it's kind of like broccoli. Is there anybody here that's tempted to gluttony when they see broccoli? I mean, maybe one or two of you. And if, 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 if you are that person and you want to speak to me, I can refer you to, um, to culinary counseling, if there is such a thing. But if, it's, but if it's really nice 
80% cacao chocolate. Maybe in frosting on a chocolate cake with a, with a cherry filling. Jen, are you with me here? That's tempting. Broccoli, not so much. Chocolate cake with chocolate frosting, that's a different story. So it's not the temptation, it's what we decide to do with it. Let me make one other observation about temptation. Temptation is only tempting if whatever it is we are tempted by is appealing enough to us that, we, that we'll succumb, right? In our cultural setting, what is the first thing that we think about when, when we are being tempted by the devil? I mean, let's be honest. We think about this little guy in a, in a red suit, right, with a tail and a pitchfork, who's sitting on our shoulders and whispering evil thoughts into our ear. That's what we think when we think about temptation. You know, I don't know if we got that from the 1970s television show Bewitched or where that came from. But clearly, I, I would will be willing to bet that if any of us faced the devil and he was wearing a red suit with little horns and a tail and a pitchfork, that probably everybody here would not be tempted by that. Because he's so clearly identifiable as the tempter. You see, what tempts us are the subtle things. The things that in their own right are good. And it's only when they get pushed over the edge of being good and pure and holy into something that's not that, that it becomes a temptation to evil, right? So my, my point is this. Don't go looking around for a little guy wearing a red suit because that's not going to be your problem. In fact, I wish all of my temptations were by a guy in a red suit because I'd be, I'd be temptation-free. The nature of temptation, by definition, is just a distortion of something that is, that is actually good and beautiful. Something that is wholesome. Something that, that, that we were made for. And, of course, the trick of the tempter that seems to catch us off guard is is when we are presented with an opportunity that appears good and beautiful, only to be slightly distorted, just enough to catch us in a mo- moment of weakness and a moment of desire. Right? Well, that leads me to uh, the first experience or the first challenge that, that Jesus faced by the devil in the desert on this particular occasion. And... Uh, and what we find here is Jesus being tempted to serve himself rather than serve the values of the kingdom. Jesus fasted during his time in the desert. So this first and most obvious temptation that we see in this text today is that the devil confronts Jesus at the most basic uh, place of human desire, which is Jesus' hunger, right? The devil tempts Jesus to make bread. Now, if the kingdom of God that Jesus was about to inaugurate in his ministry was about anything at all, it was about Jesus embodying the selfless love of God for others. The temptation here is not the temptation to gluttony. This is not about eating. 
The temptation here that Jesus faces is the temptation to short-circuit the selfless love of God by taking care of one's own needs first before you consider the needs of others. That's the temptation. And Jesus, of course, responds to this temptation by quoting from the, the Torah, the Jewish Old Testament, and he says, It is written, man does not live by bread alone. This response, by the way, you know where that comes from. It harkens back to the story of the Israelites as they spent 40 years wandering in the desert wilderness. And when they got hungry and began to complain to God about their hunger, God responded by providing them with what? Manna. The literal translation, what is this? (laughs) Bread from heaven. And some of the people of Israel were not satisfied to gather up just enough manna to feed their family for a day as God had instructed, right? Go out, get, the, get enough manna for the day, you'll eat for the day. The next morning, there'll be more manna for you. Do not gather more than one day at a time. So some people in Israel began to stockpile manna. And, and what they discovered, however, is that the more that they hoarded, the more that they stockpiled, the more that they were selfish, the more that they thought about their own self-interest when it came to this manna deal, they discovered, excuse me, that the manna went bad. Because the point of this for God was to trust God for your daily provision on the day that you needed it. The devil tempts Jesus to forget about the provision of God and to take matters into your own hands. The devil says to Jesus, just like he did in the garden with Adam and Eve, he says, it's okay for you to eat from the tree, right? Who says you can't enjoy that delectable, beautiful piece of fruit? That's what it's there for. The temptation to serve oneself first rather than serve others, confronts the fundamental character of God's kingdom. And this temptation is not not just a temptation uh, that Jesus must face. This is also a temptation that each and every one of us must face, probably on a daily basis, if not more often than that. Every decision that we encounter in in an ordinary day is about, how am I going to save my butt in this situation? Right? I mean, let's be honest. The challenge of the tempter is not about bread. The challenge of the tempter is about recognizing from where our bread comes from. If you want to know the quickest way to distort the character of God's kingdom, buy into the me-first culture that we live in. Buy into it. Hook, line, and sinker. As you're following your stock portfolio, as you're planning for your comfortable retirement or your next vacation, as you're dealing with your hunger pangs and thinking about what restaurant or what delectable meal you're going to have to satisfy those, forget about the fact that all of this stuff that, you, that you're worried about is a gift from God. And you have just set aside the most important priority of the kingdom, which is it's not about us, it's about others. This is the temptation that Jesus faced and overcame. And this is what the temptation to serve oneself over others looks like. Well, the second temptation that Jesus faces in this text is the temptation to control your environment. 
The devil shows Jesus all of the kingdoms of the world, as we noted in this uh, text earlier, and he says, this can be yours. You can be the king of all of this and more if, if you worship me. You're already the king anyway. Why wouldn't you, why wouldn't you take this stuff? It's yours. The temptation to take what is already yours is the temptation to control your own environment for Jesus. And when we do that, we place ourselves in the driver's seat and we place God in the back seat. Neil Anderson describes temptation like this. He says, the essence of temptation is an invitation to live independently from God. That's a pretty good description, don't you think? The essence of temptation is the invitation to live independently from God. That's right. Even with our good intentions, our attention to detail, our desire to do it right, our interest in expediency for expediency's sake, the moment we control our environment and thereby take away that control that belongs to God, we have succumbed to this temptation. The remedy for this temptation is worship. Jesus answers the devil by quoting from the Torah again. He says, Worship the Lord your God. He is the only one you should serve. Jesus is essentially quoting one of the uh, Ten Commandments here. And if your temptation this morning is to control, if this is about you, and it is about some of you, I'm sure, if your temptation is to worry and to fret and to manage and to maneuver, then the only remedy to remind you who's in charge is the remedy of worship. So if you're here, you're on the right path. This past week, my youngest son was in an auto accident. I was in Detroit at the Covenant Annual Meeting which is the national gathering of our uh, uh, confederation of churches. got a phone call when I was driving back from the, uh, the conference uh, center uh, from my son at the very moment of the accident took place. And, uh, you know, you kind of got caught up in all of this and um, went flying by my exit that I needed to take. And um, Roxy is, of course, here. In, uh, in, in Alaska, I, I'm in Detroit, and um, my son was rear-ended by a 16-year-old driver uh, driving a Ford Excursion, which is one of those giant, like, mega trucks that men buy because, well, I don't know why they buy them. But anyway, uh, my son was not hurt, thank God. But our car was totaled, and so I rerouted my, my plane trip back here, and that's why I missed last Sunday, and I was really thankful that Dan was available to, to come. Um, I routed my trip through Seattle so that I could stop and, and help my son sort of sort through the details of this accident, deal with the insurance companies, if any of you have done that before, it's not always pleasant, and, and take my son to the doctor just to find out if everything was okay. And as I got on a plane to come back home, here to, uh, to Eagle River. Um, earlier this week, I sat down on my seat. And I took a, a deep breath and I, I kind of reflected on the events of the past week of my life. I, I sat with thousands of, of uh, covenant folks 
from churches all over the world and, and celebrated what God is doing in our, our church. We planted last year 20 new churches. Um, I, 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 I reconnected with a friend of mine who is the president of the uh, Covenant Church in Kenya who, uh, who told me <laughs> that his church... Um, which when I was there a few years ago had 50 people, now has 450 people. And he said to me, he said, Reverend Bradley, you know what the reason for that growth is, don't you? And I go, no, I don't. God. He says, yes, but you were the one who gave us the $800 so that we could build an outhouse. And that's why people come. I'm going to be out here later today seeing where <laughs> is the best spot for an outhouse. Anyway, I, I, I'm on the plane and I'm thinking through all these things. And I'm, uh, you know, the, the low rumble of the plane from the en- engines outside. And there I sit in row 10. And I did something that I often do when I discover that I have been overcome by the, the temptation to control my environment. When I have forgot who is actually in control of my life and the safety of my children. Let's be honest. And I breathe this prayer. God, I'm sorry for thinking that I can, I can manage all the details of my life. Thank you for protecting my son from injury. You can have my life back now. So if you are here today and this is the temptation that you are particularly inclined toward, I invite you and I encourage you to give your life back to the person who's really meant to manage it. Jesus faced the temptation to control his environment rather than trusting that it was the Father's job to control his environment. And for those of you who are here who are type A personalities, this is the temptation that trips you up. You know that. For some of you, you don't even recognize this as a sin because you have had control of your life for so long, you wouldn't know what it looked like if it was any other way. The third temptation that Jesus faces in this text I'm calling the temptation to avoid suffering. The, lamp, the, the, the temptation that Jesus faces really is about jumping off of a, a high place and having the angels swoop in and, and save him. And of course, the devil says to Jesus, you know, if you're, if you're really from God, your life's not at risk. Come on. If, if you are really the Son of God, you don't have to walk the way of, of suffering and death. That's not for you. I've got a better idea, the devil says. Why don't you jump right now and then have God's legion of angels come in and save you. Just before your foot hits a stone, you get, you get picked up and saved. And, and to everybody's delight and the spectacle, the spectacle of it all, they can see who you really are. This is the temptation to avoid suffering. Again, Jesus was certainly capable of calling on the angels to save him if he needed to. 
But God's plan for the kingdom from the beginning was not that the king would, listen to this, the king would rule by power and military might. God's plan is that the kingdom of God would be ruled by a suffering servant. A a servant who would place his life in the hands of a father. And in so doing, rule not by sword and not by armies and not by angels, not by the machinations of power. Rather, this king would govern by the example of his own suffering and death. The temptation to avoid suffering is not just a temptation that Jesus faces and overcomes, but it's also a temptation that you and I face on a regular basis. Who among us likes to suffer? Go ahead, raise your hand. Again, I've got counseling for you. None of us. When we are faced with a hard task that may involve suffering or, or obedience, most of us choose the easier path because it isn't as demanding and it doesn't hurt as much. Right? It doesn't require as much from us. There are times in our lives where, where the steepness of the climb is exhausting. And we wonder if there will be any relief from this, whatever it may be. I'm here to tell those of you who are perhaps facing some of the most challenging experiences of your life, perhaps that you've ever faced right now, that one of the marks of God's kingdom are the bumps and the bruises that we get as we confront life's challenges. Suffering is a mark of God's kingdom. The temptation for Jesus to throw in his cards and and really uh, let somebody else deal with suffering and death, it, it must have been enormous if you think about it. But he didn't give up. He didn't give in. He didn't complain because he understood his suffering in the context of God's larger plan. He understood that the way to the top was by what? Going down. He understood that in order to be first, he must also be last. He understood, above all else, that through his suffering and death, the reality of God's kingdom would become visible. And guess what, folks? Why would we think it would be any other way for us? So that leads me to the end of our reflection this morning about temptation. And what I want to say to you is this. I don't know what the temptations are that you face, but you're not a lost cause. As far as God is concerned, you're not a lost cause. It doesn't matter how many times you've failed. It doesn't matter uh, how stupid the temptation may be. You are not a lost cause. At the heart of God's kingdom, Jesus calls those who choose to follow Him to face and overcome temptation to serve oneself rather than others. And if that's you, go for it. To control your environment rather than allowing God to control the details of your life. Try it. Give away your managing your life for once. The people around you will like you better. I promise. 
and the temptation to avoid suffering at, at all costs. As Christians, as Christians, you and I are, are called to continue that spirit-led proclamation and enactment of God's kingdom in this world. And we are also tempted to abandon the task that God has given us for ways of, of self-fulfillment and power and, and spectacle. But we need not choose that path. As N.T. Wright says, at the heart of our resistance to temptation is love and loyalty to the God who has already called us His beloved children in Christ and who holds out before us the calling to follow Him in the path which leads to the true glory. I love that. That's the path that Jesus has already trod upon. That is the path that He holds out to us today. That's the path that you and I can celebrate every time we gather at the Lord's table and receive the gifts of bread and cup that we are about to join together uh, and receive in a moment. So as you come to the table today, and there's all kinds of reasons why people come to the table, I, I want to make sure that you come to this table because you have been invited by Jesus Forget about me. You've been invited by Jesus to share in His sufferings and in His glory. Come to this table because you recognize that this is the kind of life that you've been seeking all along and you didn't realize it before right now. Come to this table not because you're more spiritual or more capable than anybody else or even more useful to God and His kingdom because you probably aren't. Come because you are in need of God's grace even today and you desire the strength to make it through the current challenges that you face, not all alone, but with Jesus walking with you. You are not a lost cause. The temptations that you face are real. The hope for your future is bright. Because it can be filled with joy if you entrust your life to the one who has already walked the path before you, Jesus. Come.